episode two of Pint Size Reptiles podcast. We uh, we are going to get into our species now, our first species. Uh, we all agreed the first species for this podcast should be one that is close to our hearts. And we went with the rubber boa, which is a super underappreciated snake in the hobby. But we can talk into reasons why. Later on, when we get into the hobby, the beginning of this, we will talk about natural history. But Jason, Travis, welcome to our first official species episode, episode two. Uh, I'll let Travis go ahead. I don't want to butcher the uh, scientific name, but we're talking about the rubber boa, which is known as what, Travis? <laughs> it's known as the rubber boa. <laughs> Stop that. You're the doctor. You got to say smart stuff. It is Korea bote. Korea bote, which is, uh, depends on how you look at it scientific name-wise. If, if you look at them as a as one species with subspecies, that's Korea bote, and then we'll talk about the subspecies. Or depending on what you read, sometimes they look at them as full species, which would be Korea bote and the Korea sub- ubertica. Yes, what he said. So there's a northern and a southern one. So we'll talk about that and the differences there and a possible third uh, species out there or subspecies as well. But uh, the rubber boa is a very interesting North American boa that I think does not. I, I'm amazed, and, and we've talked about it before and we'll get to it, but I'm amazed still. It's not more prevalent in the hobby in North America, at least. You know, mm-hmm. we're we're very big on going out and getting the exotics, but we have some really cool native stuff that really is exotic to a lot of people. I mean, a rubber boa is pretty exotic to a lot of people because they they've never seen it, and even people that live in the areas where they're found have never seen them. Um, yes, they're very elusive in their natural habitat, though. I mean, they do spend a lot of time in burrows or undercover and things like that. And uh, I think one of the things that drew me to them is just their there's such an anomaly to be called a boa. Yeah. You know, something that's actually found active in light snow is just amazing to me. Well, and it's weird because in our country, we also have the rosy boa. So for those that don't know, the two boa species that we have in North America are the rubber boa and the rosy boa. The rosy boa, although not super uh, big in the hobby, has still got a pretty good base in the hobby. Uh, mm-hmm. And I guess maybe that's driven by maybe not morphs, but more locality. There's not really a lot of locality. There, there is and there isn't to rubber boas. I mean, it's going to grow up looking kind of like a rubber. There is some variation, but it's it's one solid color. There's not going to be this tons of different pattern variations and all this. It's yeah. going to be and the variation that you'll see you'll see within a, a population. So in, within a locality, you're going to see a range from light to dark. It's yeah. not really a way to distinguish any type of locality. So I'm hoping through this episode we can bring some light to rubber boas. Not too much light because I still need to buy some. Uh, so don't everybody go out. That's, that is the one thing you see them pop up and man, they are gone immediately. So I well, feel that's like because the aficionados like us want more, more, and yeah, more of them. I told my wife, I was like, I could have an entire, just like rack of rubber boas and be happy. Like I don't, it's, well, we'll go into it. the whole reason I love rubber boas. That it was as chi- a childhood I had, I know Travis, I think you said the same story and you have that book. I don't know. Mine's in a, a bag somewhere. I take herping. But it's the Audubon Field Guide to North American Reptiles, which is right there. Everybody that's watching the video, he is holding it. Travis is holding it. And it's got a picture, a beautiful picture of a, like an olive green. And I can, I can, in my head, it was burned into my memory, the <laughs> olive green rubber boa in that picture. And, and there it is. You kind of see it in the picture there. Uh, I wanted that as a kid. I've wanted one forever. And they're super hard to find in the hobby if you don't know the right people. They don't, there's not some people working with them. They don't produce really huge litters like a corn snake, which will give you 20 something eggs. 
so they're not overly common. And that stuck with me. And until I think it was three years ago, I never had any. And then I finally was like, you know what? I'm going to hunt them down. And I did. And now I have two pairs of them. Uh, Travis has beaten me. He's got more. And I think Jason's also has, has more. But forget both of y'all. I'll, ha- I'll have more at some point. I have more than two pairs, yes. Yeah. <laughs> See, I only have... I want to well, keep growing I mean, them, but... I only have one pair, really. <laughs> but then I just have three extra females, so... What a horrible problem to have. <laughs> I don't know how you're finding lone females. Oh. <laughs> Send them over here. <laughs> I know people. <laughs> that, that, this is really... You'll find as we go through this, this podcast and we talk about some of these species, they're really a, a species, all of these small ones, of who do you know? Because they're not, I can go on Morph Market and find 500 of this species. It's, I've got to know who breeds them so that I can talk to them before they put them up for sale and go ahead and get mine. So. Yeah, true. I would say most of these are probably pre-sold or, you know, before they're even ready to go. They're already lined up with new homes. So this will be interesting. Like I said, that, that picture burned in my head. I know, Travis, I've talked to you and we've heard on podcast. You've said that picture yeah, was it's the same with me. Was the same for you. Uh, Jason, how did you get into you? You're you're the well, Travis. You lived out that way, but you're the one that lives closest right now, Jason, to their native range. Yeah. So interestingly, I actually grew up in their range. Um, I was born in Texas, and uh, but I moved when I was four to Northern California. I never actually saw any out there, and I didn't really start keeping snakes at all until I was uh, here in Colorado. Um, a good friend of mine had rubber boas, and so that's where I first learned about him was seeing a pair that he had, you know, he talked about finding them. He was from Southern California, but he had found some out there and that's really what kind of sparked my interest in him. So, um, I got some in the early two thousands. I had my first litter of them in 2003 and, uh, they're just, like I said, they're an, they're an anomaly compared to a lot of different things I keep. And they're a lot of fun. They're just, they're very calm animals. They're great. Uh, introduce people to snakes because they're just, they're not prone to bite. Um, they're, they're very calm. They're slow moving. They, you know, they like to kind of just wrap up around you and they're just, they're a blast to keep. They have a very unthreatening look to them as well. Very much. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no one, no one's ever looked at a rubber go up rubber bow and gone, Oh my God, I'm horrified. They've gone, man, that's a really big worm. <laughs> Cause there's, there's not a ton of definition to head or body it's kind of a lump on either side because the tail kind of looks like a head which we'll talk about also yeah. in this episode so yeah to some they may look a little boring <laughs> yes i <laughs> get that uh, a lot they're just great they're great animals and then travis you got into them uh jason's kept them longer than any of us but travis you got into them more recently uh when did you find uh, it was kind of like you i i had always had that picture burned in my head And I don't know, just one day I really put my mind to, you know what? I'm keeping things that I like, but I really, you know, I'd, so you always kind of have this holy grail species and rubber boas would have been one of those for me. You know, yeah. and I had acquired up to that point all my other really holy grail species. You know, you know the same way that the rubber bow was burned into my head, that condor picture on the cover of a National Geographic. You know, that was burned into my head. I got my condor. Um, the gray band picture in that same Audubon book that really grabbed me, and I got my gray bands. Um, 
black-headed pythons, you know, and I got my blackhead. And then just for a while, I stopped getting those species that I had always really been passionate about. And I, like I said, I just kind of woke up one morning and was like, you know what? I need to go back and do that for myself because it, that's why I got into reptiles was the passion for these odd, unique species. Not that I don't enjoy the other species that I keep, but there's just something better when you really have that connection that you've had for so long. And so like you, I hunkered down and I just started looking around and digging deep. And the first pair that I saw, I emailed the guy. I said, what's your PayPal? How much are they? And when can you ship them? And, you know, just kind of went from there. And for a while I stopped, you know, with just those two and the more I kept them, the more I really enjoyed them. You know, they've got a very different personality from most snakes. Like Jason said, they're very calm. They're very deliberate. I don't want to say they're friendly per se, but they're not, you know, they're not like a ball python where you can put it in somebody's hand and it doesn't do anything because it's a ball python. Yeah. You can put it in your hand and it, it'll crawl around and it'll be active, but it's not like trying to get away from you. It's you're just another part of its environment. And so, yeah, sometimes they'll wind between your fingers. Sometimes they'll just coil around your finger or coil around your wrist. And you could spend, you know, an hour with it just curled around your wrist and it's happy there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, you know, I thought I was good with just these two, but I want more. And so I, you know, have continued to pick up others as I could find you guys remember that um, picture that used to pop up on the King Snake forums once in a while? And it was the, I can't remember what keeper it was, but he had his his hand up with his uh, fingers spread and there was a rubber boa wrapped around each one. I think that may have been Hoyer's. I, I could be mistaken, but yeah, I've seen it. Okay. Yeah, he's got like, he's got his hand up and exactly. it looks like a ring. just yeah. ringed around all of his fingers. How cool was it when you're uh, for your first pair, one of the babies did that for the first time? Oh, it's awesome. I've got, I have so many pictures of them doing that because yep. you know, it's just awesome. And I've, and I've got one where I've got, you know, the females get bigger than the males. I've got one where the females are on my wrist and the males around my hand, my That's finger. Cool. And like you said, you could go about your day and it'll spend an hour sitting there while you're doing other things. It's really, it's kind of fun. Yeah. They, uh, yeah, I, that picture got me and it was, I don't know, 20 or something years later that I finally was like, I'm going to do it. And I got that pair and my wife will tell you when they came in the mail and I opened them up, it was like when you see the, like, you know, the videos of kids when they get like a Xbox or whatever for the first time, these old kids at Christmas and like they just freeze and they can't, they're so excited. That was yeah. me. Like the moment I opened it and I That's held awesome. one in my hand, it was the most, it's probably the most excited I've ever been for any snake that I've ever owned, uh, which sounds bad for every other snake I have, but I mean, it was years of like, this is not going to be something I'm going to be able to get. You never saw them at shows. You never, like, no one really talked about them. Uh, that's also, so this is one of the positives of social media. Uh, there's a rubber boa Facebook group. And that's, I think that's how I kind of reached out and found out who had them at the time was through that group. And it's a very fairly small group because not a lot of folks have them. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's still to me, like, I walk in and can't believe that I have two pairs of rubber boas in my snake room. Uh, this is because, like you said, it's it's the holy grail thing. I didn't think that that was something I could have. It was very easy to get everything else. Everything else is at shows all the time. You see them all over the place. So, 
as we go through this, uh, there's definitely more excitement for me when I talk about this because there was a, a childhood uh, fantasy attached to this of this is going to be an awesome snake. So let's get into uh, their natural history, their, their range. Their range is um, as far as the U.S. goes because the U.S. being such a huge country, country, it's a very weird thing when we start talking about some of our snakes because some of our snakes have massive ranges. Something like a uh, like a rat snake, you know, rat snakes range from East Coast to Texas, and uh, like, they're everywhere. Garter snakes, garter snakes, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, these guys have. If you look on a map, it looks kind of big because it covers you know five or six states and into Canada. But a lot of these populations, like we talked, we'll talk about, are more like pocket. There are certain elevations they're found in certain areas. Um, so yes, they may be found in uh, Nevada, but they're not found in all of Nevada. They may be found in Washington, but it's not all of Washington. So their, their range is California, Nevada, Idaho, Washington, Oregon. Uh, the map shows into Wyoming, uh, and then up into Canada there, Canada. Um, and there's rumors of a pocket of them in Colorado, but I don't know that that's ever been substantiated. Yeah. Well, I heard that too. And I never got up into that area. <clears throat> Neither have I. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, I do know people that have seen them in Wyoming, so they definitely are there. And their range really goes from the southern part of California in terms of uh, north and south. I mean, they're only – so the San Bernardino Mountains is, what, about 130 miles from the Mexico border? From the border, yeah. Which is presumably a warmer area. But one thing to point out is the more south you get, the, all those populations are at higher altitude. Yeah, so so growing up, I was a boa person, which is what drew me to that picture in, in – the field guide because it was said boa underneath it and i was like it's a north american boa but they are like you said before they are they're a weird boa they do like it cold i don't i don't say they like it cold but they tolerate and they tend to live in cool areas and uh they don't do now, i would disagree with you a little bit there okay i would say they do like it cold um mm-hmm. because well, cold in relationship to what we think about boas. Yeah, they're they're they're, yes. they're, they're not going to bask at ninety five or ninety degrees like some of yeah. our boas. And they're if not gonna... you if you kept them at more tropical temperatures all the time, they will not thrive. Yes. So I'm saying I don't think they like cold weather. That's their body. They they tolerate cold much better. They live at a a temperate temperature year round. They'd be fine, but they do well in the cold as well. Like they, mm-hmm. I think our the way we normally think of boas is we think of hot. I know, like, when I first got into snakes, uh, it was red cell boas, 95, 95 degrees, <laughs> basketball, 95 degrees, which is, yep. which is too warm now. Anyways, but we always think much warmer because it comes from a rainforest. They got to like it hot. But these guys don't come from that. They uh, Well, and they're, um, they're not usually found, I believe, once it hits about 80, 85, they start going underground to cool off. Yes. And so they're not really even found at warmer temperatures. You know, they, you'll come out more at night when the temperatures are dropping, things like that. And um, just reports that they've been seen in light snow, like I, I brought up earlier, but that just blows my mind. Well, Travis has an experience with rubber bows in the wild, right? Yes. Um, so one of my hobbies is whitewater rafting, and I will raft the middle fork of the salmon up in Idaho and over you know, sporadically over 20 years going up there, I was always, always, always hunting for them. You know, we'd pull into camp, I'd, we'd get everything set up and I'd just take off and start herping. And, you know, I found probably every snake species in Idaho other than that one. And then about a decade ago. Back to being your holy grail. <laughs> yeah. Back to being your holy grail. always the elusive one. 
Um, I was walking. It was 11 o'clock at night. It was probably about 40 degrees. You know, I had a, I mean, I had fleece pants on and a coat and everything. I was walking back to my tent. I sat down and something squirmed underneath me. And it was just this nice, you know, two foot female rubber boa. So out and about active at 40 degrees. And that animal was just happy as a clam to be out at that time. Yeah. So they, they, it's amazing. And we'll talk more about the craziness of that when we get into the captive care, because we'll talk about how to, uh, to brumate them in captivity. And that part's still crazy, but they are a weird bow in the fact that they do really well in the cold. Um, but like you said, when you get down to the South, when we say South, they're not in the deserts of the South. They are up on these like plateau up in these really cool climate areas because they will overheat. Well, and they are kind mm-hmm. of desert like, I mean, you know, for those of you who are not really familiar with being out West, the way Jason and I are, you know, are familiar with, these are high elevation deserts. So they're drier, you know, they're not the Mojave desert type of desert, but it's still, it's still a very, it's a lot drier than you would think, you know, sort of the sagebrush Mm -hmm. and scrubland type of dry. Yeah. with, With actual winters and snow. In, yes. in, yeah. I think that's a lot of people hear desert, especially when they think desert in the in the United States. They definitely think the Southwest. They picture yeah, you picture Joshua trees and yeah, sand and yeah, cactus and rattlesnakes, and it's going to be hot and yeah, yeah, it'll get cold at night, but it'll still be blazing hot during the day. The if you look at any of the websites, there's several websites. Um, I pulled up a couple: CaliforniaHerbs.com and Robos.com. If you look at some of the the native range, it's definitely more uh, brush and like scrub. It's it's up high. It's got uh, lots of rocks, not a lot of ground cover as far as like grass and stuff and all these pictures. It's uh, it's pine needles. Yeah, yeah. Um, it does. It's not an overly pleasant looking place to live. Uh, it doesn't look like it if you're if you're an animal that uh, is trying to survive. It's it's a, kind of a barren area, even though it's got some plant life. Um, it's not well, especially when we think boas because we're thinking lush jungles uh, for most of what we keep as far as boas. These are definitely uh, colder areas. But mm-hmm. I need to make my way out there and go find find sambos. It's, it's, but it's going to be mainly uh, conifers and pine trees and stuff like that. So yeah, and it's interesting. Travis was talking about looking for them. I've gone numerous times trying to find them when I've been out in California, and um, I've never once been able to see them. And I think I shared with you guys before, but my my grandma came to visit me here in Colorado one time, and I was showing her all the snakes. And when we got to the rubber boa, she says, oh, I know what a rubber boa is. She goes, I find them in my garden all the time. And so, you know, the one who's looking for them, when I'm out there, I'm getting skunked, and grandma's moving them out of her garden. That'd be such a horrible problem to have, just wander outside and rubber boas in your yard. Yeah, I wish. (laughs) So as far as in the wild, they – we know where they live. They are a burrower by nature. If you look at them, you can tell. You can look at them and tell that they are not. They're not made really for climbing. They can climb, but they're not. They're designed to go underground because they are. Uh, they're nest raiders. One, they're in areas where it's very cold. So underground is best because your temperature is going to stay relatively stable. Uh, so they don't totally freeze, and they don't. They can get underground, and they won't overheat. Which is, I think, overheating is definitely a bigger fear for these animals than freezing for these animals. Yeah. And they'll utilize a lot of um, other animals, burrows, rodents, and things like that. Which also comes to what they eat, 
right? In the wild, they are nest raiders. They will go down, they will raid a nest of shrews or some sort of rodent, and then they'll live there. Um, which is also another reason why you guys aren't seeing them when you go places, because that's probably where they're at when you're there. They're probably underground in some burrow. And that's that's the problem. Yeah. I, I was thinking the other day, thinking about all the snakes that we consider uh, rare or endangered or protected in the United States. And a lot of them are burrowing snakes. Uh, you think of indigos, live a lot of time underground. Uh, I have Louisiana pine snakes, spend most of their life underground. I was reading the paper on the rubber boas and they were considering them the fish and wildlife was considering them rare yeah they had them on a threatened list for a while but it's a snake that lives a big chunk of its life underground you know it's not it's not going to be a rat snake where oh it's in this tree that i just walked by it's in my face or rattlesnakes when you're walking through and you oh i can hear it it's right there i can see it these things are going to be they're very good at staying hidden uh so i think sometimes on some of these species we don't really know fully because i know in that paper talked about there were some trips where they took where they found tons of them yeah. And I've heard about people that are uh, looking for, say, like a California mountain king snake, which are pretty elusive animals to find, but they'll find, you know, 15 rubber boas while they're looking for a California mountain king. So they're out there if you're there at the right time. I mean, in my case, unfortunately, when we travel, it's usually in the summer. And yeah. so I think that I'm just looking for them when it's too hot for them. I don't know what y'all's opinion, but I think they probably are one of those snakes that have a very small optimum temperature at which they like to be out doing stuff. Yeah. Uh, Out on the surface. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. And so they're not going to be super active during large chunks of the year because that relatively small temperature range only happens for a short, short period. So when you're talking about someone going out looking for king snakes and finding 10 or 20 rubber boas, they hit it at that temperature range, that that perfect time of year. And outside of that, yes, they will seem very rare. They will seem like they don't exist, but they're under your feet. They're everywhere, just under your feet. So, Mm -hmm. and, And again, when we get into the captive care, I think that's probably one of the reasons captive care wise they don't fit our model of how to keep a snake usually uh, yeah and i know a lot of times when they're found people are doing things like placing fake cover like a like an old piece of carpet or something because they do like to spend their time undercover under rocks in burrows and so like these studies where they're going out and catching them i think that's specifically what they're looking for is under certain cover that they can find them they're not just finding them out and about yeah i don't think they're a basking type reptile they're not going to come out and lay in the sun a ton no, because they're going to overheat too quick. Um, I had some friends in California that used to find them road cruising. And so they, at nighttime, they will yeah. come out and warm up a little bit on the asphalt. But So my two cents on, on Herbos. Travis, what are your thoughts on, uh, do you think they are as rare as, as originally? Or No, I think that it's, you know, I think it's a misapplication. You know, I think, yeah, when when they're being evaluated, I think that the people going out to look for them are looking for them at the same time that they would be looking for, you know, and finding other more, you know, diurnal and active snakes. You know, if you're out normal hunting around and you're thinking, you know, I can find a king snake, I can find a gopher snake. If that's the time of day you're looking, you're not going to be finding rubber boas. Um but, you know, most naturalists aren't out trucking around in the dark, in the cool, thinking prime snake weather. Yeah. So they're not going mm-hmm. out at night at 65 degrees thinking this is going to be great yeah. snake time. You know, so I, 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 I believe that it's they're not nearly as scarce as a lot of the a lot of the naturalist societies will say they are. Um, 
you know, that said, some of these pocket locations, I do think they are threatened simply through habitat destruction and stuff. Yeah. Well, and some of them are such a small pocket. Yeah. You know, they're isolated and they've, yeah. And so there's, that's a good point. And that's, you know, I think that's what we see with, uh, you know, Umbertica is that those little pockets are just getting smaller and smaller. And mm-hmm. within those pockets, they don't have anywhere they to go. They may be very common, but that pocket is so small that if that pocket goes, they go. Yeah, 30 so miles from that pocket, they there may be none. They would be in that regard, but I don't think in the broader sense, they are particularly threatened. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the two different species, subspecies, depending on what you read, right? Uh, there's the Northerns, which are most likely the most, they're the, the dominant one in the hobby, and they have the largest range. And I would say they're By probably far. the only one yeah. in the hobby. So if we're talking about the Northern, the, uh, I'm going to mess with that. Karina Bote. Got it. I was just calling her Bose. Karina Bote. Uh, as far as the northern ones go, what size are we looking at? Um, big male might be, I don't know, 16 say, inches. That would be like a really, really big male. I'd say that they can get a big male even up to 20. Okay. Um, you know, coming from your more northern areas like uh, Oregon and Washington, they found some bigger ones. But um I would agree that I'd say on average, you're probably looking more like 16, 18 inches for males. And so there's definitely a sexual dimorphism in, in these guys. As, as with a lot of boas, there are, but in this one is very, like, like sand boas, it is very obvious. Yes. Uh, even and growing up, I The guess, males are also sort of, they have a more gracile build to them. So like if you have a male and a female that are the same length, the female is going to be, you know, like bigger and thicker and chunkier like your thumb where the male is going to be thinner like your pinky finger mm-hmm. yes yeah, so if, if you're used to keeping rosy boas or sand boas it's it's the kind of the same same build and idea these these males are are smaller they're slender uh but one thing is you could have two baby rubber boas raised up feeding the same way and it is very shocking at how quick to me you see that difference in size i've got a male and a female they live together they feed the same time, and it's obvious after a year and a half of having them, which one's the female. She has definitely gotten longer and thicker much faster than he has. Mm-hmm. So uh, that ability to put on weight, I think, is also a really interesting thing when it comes to some of these boas, the, how quick they can do it and how the males don't. I don't know. It's a, it's a neat evolutionary thing I find where these males, even eating the same amount of food, just don't grow the same. Yeah, because you'd assume in the wild that the males aren't eating the anywhere near what the females are to get that size. So that is really interesting. Yeah. And, and I, I have found, you know, as young, they will tend to eat on basically the same schedule as they get older and the males get more mature, at least for me, the males eat less. Yes. Yes. I can see that. The males always stop eating in the fall before my females do. Yes. And I, and I compare it because again, my, my rubber boas, babies haven't gone through that, but I compare it a lot to sambos, which I know are drastically different boas, but I mean, they kind of, one likes a hot, one likes a cold, but they're both burrowing snakes. They both have a sexual dimorphism and they do the same thing. The males, you'll see all the time in sambo groups, the people complain, my snake's not eating. And if you ask if it's a male, like a hundred percent of the time, it's a male. You're like, yeah, it's not eating because it wants to fuck. So the same thing's going to happen with your rubber boas. If it's not eating, it probably wants to fuck. That's just where they're at. They, 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 they get so driven 
some of these animals on breeding that food is not a thought. Um, and the males especially, which is interesting, but not only the not eating part, the very interesting part I find about them, uh, natural history wise. And one thing that you have to replicate really in captivity is the time of year babies are born. Babies are born relatively (laughs) like right before winter, right? That seems what it seems to be before it gets cold. And then they go through brumation without ever eating, which is very, uh, counterintuitive to how we normally are as snake keepers, you know? All right, you get babies, you got to get them eating. Got to get them established, yeah. And uh, it doesn't work that way with herbivores. boas. Uh, your best bet if you're, and I know we're not breeding, but if, if you're breeding herbivores boas, or in the wild when those babies are born, they're going to go brumate first. They're going to slow down for a few months. And then they spring. won't even show interest in food. Yeah. Until the, oftentimes until the spring when they wake up, they're just wired for it. And I wonder how many, uh, just in the hobby in general, how many baby rubber boas were killed by not brumating them and just going up, oh, they starve to death because people kept them at the, at a warmer at temperature. At the higher temps. Yeah. <clears throat> and their body kept running the way it should not be running. And then they just didn't make it. They burned up all those reserves they were born with. I know I was guilty of that with my first litter that I had. Um, I had, I believe I got two of them eating and the other two I did keep up. I couldn't get them. I ended up sending them to a friend in California who had, um, better or more experience that said he could get them feeding and he ended up losing both of them. Hmm. And, you know, so it was, you know, hard lesson learned, but it's something that I know to just treat very differently now. Like don't even, there's no point in trying really. So yeah, that's a, it's super counterintuitive to everything we think of with snakes. And this, this is part of what contributes to them being less available and less popular in the hobby. I believe. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I don't, a lot of people probably don't have the patience for that or um, mm-hmm. are just going to be just scared of the fact that you have a baby snake that doesn't want to eat. Yeah, a lot of people are, are and ignorant. When I say ignorant, I don't mean negative, but they just don't know any better. Or that extra step is just too much. That extra, having mm-hmm. to do that extra thing that, because especially now in the hobby, if you're not, a lot of the new people coming into the hobby, there's a, there's a formula. There's a cookie cutter formula for how to do snakes. And it's usually based off of something like a ball python. And if it doesn't fit that cookie cutter formula, ooh, this is a hard species to take care of. And then it gets thrown to the wayside. Whereas in reality, I think herbivores are really easy species to take care of because for the next three months, mine are going to be sitting in a wine cooler. Like, I'm not going to do anything. Super easy. You just got to be willing yeah. to take that step. Yeah. And you have to get past that mental block because every other snake that we keep, we're taught, you know, when it's born, it sheds, and then you immediately get it on food. Yeah. And... You know, and that's, it is, uh, I would say a mental block in a lot of cases because it just goes so against the grain. Like blood pythons are a weird one. Now they do eat as babies and they don't go through operation, but they don't shed for like almost a year. So if you're waiting for that shed, you're just going to starve that baby. So like, it's, you, crazy. you've got to learn your species uh, mm-hmm. because they're not, they're definitely not all the same, you know, even though people will, you, people will come to you at a show and ask, do you have pythons? And they have no idea what they're asking about. Just there's so many different species of pythons or do you have boas? Like, yeah, I could sell you a sambo and I could sell you a, a rubber boa. You're not going to keep them the same way. So we talked about the adult male size females. We do know get bigger. What is a, an average size female and what would be a large female? Large females. I mean, I'd say average, you're going to range anywhere from 22, 26 inches with 26 being at the, the big side of that. 
So on average, I guess you could say about two feet. Gotcha. Two feet and chunky. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very and, chunky. And they are a weird shaped snake. And the fact that uh, they are one of those snakes, one of those few snakes that uses their tail as a head mimic. Uh, they have this bulbous tail that they can wiggle around to mimic a head, which is a, a, a defensive strategy. Yes. I, uh, I know, Travis, you have the Calabar's burrowing pythons. They have the same kind of thing. The big fat tail, they'll wiggle around above the ball of their head in the middle. So when you look at them, a rubber boa, it is a, it's an odd looking snake. And they also, as babies, they have a weird muscle tone as in like, not a muscle tone. Like they, they have uh, flabby skin and it, and it kind of looks like, Floppy. The, yeah, yeah. They, don't, they're, they're, they almost have like a jello-y feel to them. Like if, if you were any other snake or if you just handed it to somebody who wasn't familiar with snakes or even from people who are familiar with snakes, they might think that there was something wrong with the animal Yes, because their body tone is just very different. Even as adults, it's a little bit different. You know, they'll, they'll muscle up some, mm-hmm. but th- these are one of the very few species where like you hear about the body tone of talking about snakes and how we overfeed snakes and they're all obese. Like even a perfectly fed rubber boa, looks and feels obese there's just something about their bodies and the way yeah, they, they feel soft themselves. yeah they're soft and they're like even a well-muscled rubber boa does not have that same muscular feel that you know a corn snake or a ball python or even a kenyan has they they still feel kind of squishy but they're they're a perfectly toned animal that way and I think that's something for people if they're if they're going to look into getting these species. And if they go to a show and they see one, when you take it out of a deli cup and hold it, understand that it may not be unhealthy. That that's just how how they are. If the skin looks like it's got a few extra when they curve their tail and it doesn't give you a nice round bend and it's got a few little folds in there, that's how they look as babies. And if they kind of flop on your fingers, it's how they are as babies. They're 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 not a you know you hold a ball python baby. And that's all thick muscle. You know, you hold a boa and it's, it's muscle, but yeah, you're not going to find that loaf of bread shape that you want with other boas. Yeah. It's just not happening there. Um, and then also anatomy wise, that, that tail that's looks like a head. The very interesting thing is that that's skeletal. You would think, and I thought that until I saw the picture, I talked to Travis, you would think that that's muscle or fat or something that makes it look that bulbous end kind of look like a head. But if you were to look at the skeleton of a rubber boa or the skeleton of something like a calibers, calabar's burrowing python, that's skeletal. They have this bulbous bone there at the tip of the tail to give it that shape. Um, and there's a really interesting picture on CaliforniaHerps.com. If you go look at their pictures, that shows you the skeleton of one. And it's it looks like this calcium. It would almost look like what you would picture as bone cancer in some sort of, some sort of animal. But it's supposed to be this big growth of, of bone cells at the end of the tail. Yeah, it's a large, fused, vertebral bone. And what's funny is... I, you see that, then go look at some of these pages that have uh, wild rubber boa pictures, and you'll notice a lot of them have parts of their tail nipped off. And it's definitely got to be one for the other. It's got to be they use their tail as their head, as a defensive mechanism, and then whatever it is, bit the tail thinking it's the head. And so you get a lot of these that have scar tissue on the tip of their tails. I'm sure it's from that, from the actual reason that well, their tail's shaped that way. 
that's part of it. And also part of it is when they're nest raiding, they're hiding their head underneath them while they eat the babies and they're using their tail to block usually Mm -hmm. the parents and you know a mother shrew or a mother vole you know i don't know if you i mean if you have ever tried to feed live and taken a hit from just an adult mouse or an adult rat that'll mess you up and you know that's just a mouse or a rat that's angry at you imagine Mm -hmm. Imagine one that's trying to protect its babies while you were sitting there snarfing them down. They, I mean, they will bite down and latch on and just hang on and tear and rip. And that's why they, their tails are just so <coughs> scarred up is because they're hiding their head underneath their body while they're eating all the babies. And they're letting their tail just get mauled to hell. And I think that's probably more the case with the scars than yeah. just a defensive. If you think about predators that are going to eat rubber boas in their natural habitat, I don't think just waving their tail is going to scare a lot of those it's predators true. off. True. They're just going to pick them up. Um, so I think a lot of it is that their tails are designed to distract and fend off an adult while they, you know, they've, they'll, they'll finish an entire litter, like Travis said, while they're fighting with the, the parent animal with the tail. So I think that's where a lot of the scars are coming from. When you'll notice in a lot of, pictures of wild robots they're a very scarred up animal in general there's a lot of yes. interesting pictures yeah. of just scars down the body on the head um they don't live a very easy life as far as snakes go yeah and it's you know it's because like you said they they're that's how they eat that's their um their lifestyle mm-hmm. um, but that's also because of their longevity i mean these are these are long lived snakes. So well, and, and they're that's a different definition. Up, but they're just getting, lives. yes, very. Uh, when we say long lived, we're not talking, you know, people hear 20 years and think long lived for a snake. A 20 year old rubber boa is still in its prime. Um, mm-hmm. There are, <clears throat> there's a female that she was first recorded in the early 70s. 1971. Yeah. Okay. Seventy-one, and she was she was in a like a well-aged adult at that point in time, and for years they found her at this study location, and I, they finally brought her into captivity. I want to say in like the mid to late nineties, and she Correct. lived in captivity until two thousand and six. Yeah. So she was over thirty years old just from first meeting to when well, she died, and, and they she suspect was, she, she was, was fifteen to 10 twenty. Or 12. Okay, 15 to 20. So you're yeah. looking at an animal that was at least 50 years old. And interestingly, and that same animal... years getting messed up like that, you're going to understand why they are so scarred up in the wild. Yeah. That same female had a litter in 2001, which I find amazing because you're talking, you know, 50-year-old animal at that point. Yeah. Yeah, they, they are a tough, tough animal. Uh, just in general... They are. Long lived, dealing with the way they they have to survive, and again we go back to the habitat, dealing with the habitat they survive in. It is not a perfect, it's not the kind of perfect habitat you think of when you think of of snakes surviving. Um, it's a t- rough habitat for most things to live in, just because of weather and all that kind of stuff. So, I think it's another reason rubber boas uh, should get more credit. They 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 are a tough snake, and I I think it's funny with a lot of snakes, with a lot of uh, reptiles in general. Uh, they're tough animals by, by just definition of a reptile. It's a, they've been around for a long time 
Evolution has made many of them tough, minus chameleons, which are weak-ass little lizards. But the rest of them are really tough. And we, you hear some people get paranoid about, oh, God, my humidity is off by 10%. Or my temperature is three degrees too cool or too hot. And a lot of times I'm like, guys, these, these things are getting attacked on a daily basis in the wild and dealing with temperature swings, dealing with this. They can handle a lot of the stuff, which is which is detrimental, unfortunately, to a lot of them in the hobby, is they can handle a lot of stuff uh, before it really ne- negatively affects them. I mean, look at how many iguanas make it a long time or tortoises make it a long time in subpar conditions. And I think rubber bows are one of those, too. They could probably make it a long time in subpar conditions, as long as you don't overheat them. <laughs> they could probably make it a long time in subpar conditions. And so I think we underestimate how tough some of these animals are. We think of them as pets, and you got to take care of them with little kid gloves, and they're delicate. But they're not. They're tough animals. Millions of years have made them survivors. Yeah, you still want to meet the requirements, yes. but they're they're built to adapt and survive. Which is why I said I think the biggest the biggest part that's unfortunate for them is they are tough. I mean, look at how many turtles have lived in a ten gallon tank for twenty something years. Uh, look how many bearded dragons have unfortunately made it 10 or 15 years, but can't use their legs. You know, it's, there's so many situations where these things, because they're tough and because they're like, they're easy to take care of, they end up not getting taken care of correctly. And so that's one of the reasons when we're talking about these species, do the research and don't do the bare minimum research. Don't just go, what's the highest temperature I keep them at? Okay. What's the bare minimum I can keep them in? Do full research on them. And I'm not saying if you keep an animal in, okay, if bare minimum may be bad. But I also don't think like racks are a bare minimum. You can give a rack with a large enough tub. It's not a bare minimum rack. Um, mm-hmm. But I think some of these snakes, some of the things that we won't talk about, like some of the large snakes suffer from that. They're very tough animals. And they can be kept in the bare minimum. Uh, with these smaller animals, you don't have to. You've got some wiggle room. Don't don't keep them in the bare minimum. Do Do a little more. Yeah. And one thing I would caution when you bring up tubs and racks and things, um, those do help really well for humidity, things like that. So there are a lot of benefits with them. I would caution when it comes specifically to rubber boas, they are escape artists. So if you are doing a rack, you don't want just a traditional rack that's got the one eighth air gap, you will find an empty tub. Especially with babies. I mean, as they get older. um, But yeah, they are escape artists. Um, you know, as much as they are not built to climb, if they get it in their head that they want to climb out of that cage, you know, don't don't think, well, I can just get a 20-gallon tank and put a screen top on it. They'll get out. They'll, yeah. they'll pop that top off because once they decide they want to go up the corner, that's what they'll do. Um, you know, I have mine in, you know, I've got a, my, I've got my, male and two adult females in a four by two by 18 cage. Um, and, you know, I did not put them in there until I knew they were too big to get out between the panes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, no, you've got that little teeny tiny worm of a baby. If you put it in something like that, it'll slide right between those glass panes and be gone. And again, that's a reason why I think it's important to understand their natural history. When you take an animal like a rubber boa that lives in burrows and in rock clusters and things like that, it's not necessarily climbing in the sense that we think it 
we're going to find it high in trees, but it is climbing when it's inside those structures and it is yeah, yeah, designed yeah. to squeeze through smaller holes to get where it wants to go and like kind of manipulate itself through small cracks and crevices. And they're certainly going to do that in the tank if they can. Yes. Um, it also just hearkening back to that natural tree factory, um, going back a little when we were feeding them. Uh, another important thing with feeding I find is that even as adults, they kind of prefer eating smaller food items point. Uh, and more of yeah. them. So like my, my, my female, she's five years old. She could probably easily take an adult mouse. I have tried to offer her an adult mouse and she turns away from it every single time, but I can take, you know, a little cup and have four fuzzy or maybe hopper at the largest frozen fuzzies in there. And I can put that in front of her and she will scarf those down. She will grab one, just eat it, grab the next one, eat it. If I'm feeling, you know, somewhat, like inducing some of their natural behavior. I'll tap her with one. She'll start eating it. Then I'll tap her with another one. She'll wrap it, tap her with another. She'll wrap it. So mm -hmm. you can have this, you know, little daisy chain of wrapped up feeders. And so they prefer that. So when you're feeding in your animal, you know, if somehow you manage to get thing, well, this is a nice big animal. I need to feed it an adult mouse yeah. because you're you're not going to get an animal that wants to eat feed it those smaller things because that's you know again millions of years of evolution spent raiding nests don't see adult mice as feeders they see adult mice as the things that are biting them yeah. while they're yep. eating which is interesting and you you know, when you, when you keep other reptiles or other snakes in general, I feel like a lot of times we're told and we learn that you want to get them onto adult size animals as quickly as possible. Do you always hear about how pinkies and fuzzies have too high of a fat content? They don't have enough calcium in their bones. Um, you know, they need the fur and everything else. And so it's interesting that these have adapted to live on only eating babies, the things that supposedly aren't good for them. Well, it's, it's also interesting because they're a very slow metabolism snake. We talked about them living 50, 60, 70 years, possibly. That doesn't happen in something like a garter snake, which has a super fast metabolism, which has to eat a ton to keep up going. These are a slow metabolism snake. And you wonder, is this diet, which we are told is high fatty content, does that help with being able to survive in 40 degrees? Well, and they also, you're never going to see one move as fast as you'll see a garter snake or some of these other animals. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about, we hit on with it. Uh, captive care as far as caging, all right? Uh, Escape-proof, number one. That's that's the number one thing. And if you think it's escape-proof, assume it's not and look at it again. Uh, even like slide-top uh, tanks are great, but they all have those little slots for cords to go down in that you're never going to use. You got to cover those. Um, or like yeah. Travis talked about, you got a cage with a sliding glass front. There's an air gap between those two panes of plexi or glass and that's enough. It's honestly enough for them to squeeze through if they're small enough. Like you assume they can get out of whatever it is and, and try and proof it even more than that. Um, now we all keep kind of different. Uh, Jason and I are a little more the same, but Travis, you keep in a very naturalistic for your adults, a very naturalistic bioactive enclosure. Um, yes. Your younger ones are, are something like that. How do you keep your, your babies right now, Travis? 
Um, I have, so I have a, uh, you know, like small five gallon glass tanks. I still keep them kind of naturalistic, not nearly done up as much as, you know, the adult cage. Um, but they've got a lid that slides in on a track and then it's got a clip that locks it in place. And because I'm paranoid, I bought extras of those clips. So even though the lid is only this big, and it says it only needs one lock. I have four locks. You clipped it all the way across. <laughs> Make sure that it's really, really anchored in place. Um, you want to give them, at least with mine, I give them a good deep media. You know, yeah. because these things love to burrow. It's part of their nature. Um, I give them multiple hides as well. You know, half. You know, cork rounds, cork flats, they'll, they'll dig, dig, bury, hide underneath things. They really like that. Um, I'll also give them a slightly elevated spot. Just you get a bit of a thermal gradient, even in something as small as this little five thing. They like to climb up sometimes and be warmer. They like to drop down sometimes and be cooler. Okay. So do you have um, overhead heat then on yours? I don't I mean, not overhead heat per se, but the light. You know, it's even though I'm yeah, using LEDs, it, it creates enough of a heat gradient up and down that, you know, you'll see them. Sometimes they get up higher just to get that little bit of extra warmth that the lights offer than, you know, when they're hunkered down underneath the dirt and stuff. So to go back a little bit, you talked about doing a deep medium for them. Um, and I know earlier when we were talking, you mentioned that you, you make your own soil. Yes. For a lot of your animals, are your babies on the same soil mixture that your adults are on? Yes. Can you explain a little bit what you're using as a soil medium? Um, now, this works for me. I'm not going to claim it works for everybody. It's always going to be a caveat to the things that I use. Um, I will get one part cocoa peat, one part um, just basically crushed up leaf litter mold, and one part dried sphagnum moss. Blend that all together really well and use that. And then I will add a part of uh, wood pellets. And, you know, it's the stuff that you think of, you know, for using for barbecuing and stuff like that. Oh, sure. The compressed. They look like little, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They look like mm -hmm. little hard rabbit pellets. As soon as they get wet, they just vaporize basically into sawdust. Mm -hmm. And I mix that in too. Um, I do that more for the microfauna because. You know, isopods will chew that up. Yeah. Millipedes will chew that up. Tails. But it it gives it some extra bulk and loft to keep it loose. Um, so okay. I'll mix that all together. That'll be the base layer. And then on top of that, I give a really good thick layer of leaf litter. Um, and I use, you know, I use what I can find around here. I collect it, but I don't collect like from the yard here because there's, you know, cars and crap driving past. I go out, you know, way off in the wild and I pick up a, you know, giant garbage bag full of leaves. Like this time of year is a great time to do it. Um, I leave them in the bag outside over winter to freeze the ever loving hell out of them. <laughs> and then come spring, I bring them in and I bake them at 200 degrees for two hours just to make sure I'm not introducing anything creepy, scary, disgusting. Um, maple sense. and oak is what we have a lot of out here. I would probably 
be willing to use just about anything as long as I know it's not going to be overtly toxic. Um, you know, out west with you, you could probably use uh, longleaf needles, um, you know, conifer needles and stuff, because you get, you know, if you look at some of these places where they're inhabiting, they're in the ponderosa forests and stuff. So that that pine needle layer is another good, it's loose, they can go up and down through it. And it, it, it gives an extra hiding area that's not necessarily a full-on hide, but they not can a burrow, but it's really yeah. well. Yeah, they're concealed without t- truly burrowing down. Now, in yeah. your soil, do you find that they're burrowing on their own? Is it loose enough yes. for that? They okay. they will burrow on their own. Um, and that's why, you know, part of the reason you put in that, that leaf litter and part of the reason I put in those wood pellets is because it keeps it looser mm-hmm. and it doesn't let it compact down as much. Now, are they making their own burrows that it'll it'll hold that shape? Um, no, they don't like make a burrow, but they you know they dig, they dig through, through it, it the yeah. way okay. like an earthworm would. Yeah, um, interesting. They will like in under some of the hides, my adults like they have their own little territories. Like I know where my male always is, and I can pick up that little wood flat, and he will have you know packed the earth around a bit to create mm-hmm. a little depression or divot that he likes to sit in. I have a male that always is under the water bowl. Like he'll, he'll dig that area out. So there's a little hollow under the bowl. Hmm. Yeah. And same type of thing. It's like his, his one little spot in there. Also probably um, has a little bit of a microclimate there versus the rest of the cage. True. Okay. Now I don't keep any of mine together. Um, and when you house yours together, are you finding that they're, they're in there? Do they share hides often? Do you find them in groups? Um, Yes. Uh, it depends on the time of year. Like I said, the male, a lot of time he's always just off by himself. Um, but like early in the year, they will all bundle together. Um, in this much larger, I've got like a, a hollowed out log that I found. They all bundle in there all the time. Um, the male will then just take off and do his own thing later in the year. And he just kind of goes, disappears to the back of the cage. Um, but the two adult females that I have, they often stay together in that little hollowed out bowl. Um, and then there's also a spot under one of the logs that I have where the females will often congregate together. I keep my babies together uh, and I have plans on keeping them together. So caveat here, because cohabbing is such a, uh, a trigger thing in, in the hobby. For rubber boas, it's a commonly done thing to go. I mean, you go either way, but it's not huge frowned upon as far as Robo is keeping them together. In uh, fact, it's been recommended in some literature I've seen, which would make sense. Yes, they're they're a burrowing. Yeah. They're an animal living in these uh, mammal burrows. It would make sense. That there's multiples living down in these burrows for parts of the year, especially in the winter. Uh, yes. They have been there. found to, to aggregate together in the winter. Um, you know, we're not talking like full on garter snake dens, but they'll do kind of like what rattlesnakes will do. You know, you can get, a dozen of them or more as these little aggregate groups that overwinter together. So Travis, are you feeding together? Yeah. I mean, usually they will be in their little separate corners. Um, they are like most snakes. They know when it's, you know, when you're coming around to feed time, I can open the cage. If I know that the male's off to his side, I can go daggle his and then I can dangle the females with another, and they don't fight each other. You know, he eats his, she eats hers. That's funny. I don't think I've 
ever, I think only once have I ever had a rubber boa strike at their food. Uh, my babies don't, they just don't do it. But I also, um, I separate. I, I, I just, I'm, I, in my brain, I'm, I'm, I'm horrified that if I don't separate, I'll come back and find one really fat snake. Um, so I do separate. So it's, it's interesting that the three of us keep really different ways. Travis is keeping naturalistic, which is more than I think either Jason or I are doing as far mm-hmm. as the way he's keeping it. And he's keeping it together. I'm keeping, I keep mine in racks, but I do keep the pairs together. Um, I keep them on, on Reptichip, on, on a, co- a cocoa bedding, something they can get down in. They'll also hold humidity. Um, how important do y'all feel humidity is for this species? I think it's pretty important. Um, so I've kept, a, as you said, a variety of ways for all of us. I've also tried different things myself. So I do have some cages right now that, not to the extent that Travis's are, but they're a mix of uh, sphagnum moss, cocoa bedding, and cypress. And in those, I do have cork tubes and rocks and things like that. And like he mentioned, they'll burrow through it. Now, I'm not doing the the fine ground cocoa, like Travis mentioned. Yeah. I have like more like the big chips. Yeah. And so that's why I was curious if his were holding burrows or how they were moving through it. Um, but mine are more like yeah, commercially available for as reptile bedding. Like yeah. I'm not really making my own, my own stuff up. Um, I've also kept on um, aspen and I've kept on pine. And whenever I do that, I do like to always make sure I have a, a humid hide, just a bowl of sphagnum moss that they can crawl into. Um, and then I, I kind of prefer the cocoa because you can mist it. It'll hold a little bit of it. And you don't want it wet. And yeah. I would never say, like, I'm going to get these as humid or as moist as I'm trying to go for with, say, my rainbow boas, for example. But you do you want to have options. So maybe one side has a little bit more humidity, a little bit wetter soil than the other side. Well, we talk about yeah. them living in an arid place, and so we're thinking dry. But these guys are living well, underground in these micro, yeah. in micro habitats <laughs> underground, where it's probably going to hold some humidity down there. Well, and to yeah, step back a little bit, um, they are found in arid regions, but they're also found in the coniferous forests, uh, you know, up in Oregon and Washington, that are very humid all the time. So there is a big range between them, and I would agree that even in the more arid places you're they're going to be utilizing things that do have a little bit more humidity than just being out in the open and i would agree i think humidity um i haven't kept brazilians rainbow bows but you always hear like you know when you're not keeping them right because their skin starts to look a little crispy and weird yeah where they die um <laughs> you yeah yeah well you can see that with it's a dead giveaway <laughs> if if the humidity is not right on them their skin doesn't look right. Mm-hmm. You know, they look it, pinched. Yeah. They, yeah. yeah, they they look they look kind of like yeah they look pinched. They look like you wrapped them up in in plastic wrap and it just kind of went on it. Mm-hmm. So I do think the humidity is important, but yeah, again, it's not sodden, wet, soaking humidity. It's just because they're used to being underground. That underground environment is more humid it's not wet yeah but it's humid mm-hmm. well anything about we talked about the rains going up into washington and oregon that, that that's technically rainforest up there yes called mm-hmm. rainforest um and so and i can't explain it when you look at so i've got i've got very dry animals with my sand boas and i've got boas that are like the boa constrictors that live in the jungle and they like some humidity and my rainbow boas when you look at a, a rubber it just looks like it's not meant to be dry like, like it's, it looks like it's not meant to live in a super dry habitat. It looks like it is meant to, it's like these little micro scales. It looks like it could probably dry out 
if you didn't provide some sort of humidity or water or something, I can't explain it. It's just it's the way they look well, compared it, to uh, things I'm used to that can deal with dry. And to compare it to your dry snake, so you when you hold a Kenyan sand boa, they have thick, yeah, rough, dense scales. Exactly. And I would say a rubber boa feels opposite of that. I mean, they're they're called rubber boas because they look and feel like rubber, but mm-hmm. they have that soft, pliable scale to them, and um, which again, I think just looks like it needs more humidity. Yeah. So. But- yeah, again, don't go too far and keep them soaking wet because yeah. that, again, that soft, pliable scales, you know, I've, I've never experienced it, but I would, I would feel fairly confident if you kept them too wet, they would develop water blisters in sure. no time. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think uh, one thing you can do uh, when I'm keeping them in tubs, when I water, I sometimes overwater the, the bowl so that area around the water dish is wet, but the back of the yeah. hide is drier. And so they can move front to back and it's not mm-hmm. going to soak the whole thing. Or I will do, I've done in the past, I've taken um, sphagnum moss and put it in one side, in one end of the tub and just sprayed the sphagnum moss so it's wet. So they have somewhere to come up and kind of lay in. That is, and it's going to hold some humidity back in there. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, there, I think it's not, it's not as big as an issue like it is with, rubber bo- with rainbow boas. That is, baby rainbow boas, humidity is to me number one issue over anything. Uh, but and heat. These, and yeah, that's so. Let's talk about the heat with these guys. So we talk about them like in cold areas. Uh, they're not one where if you're if you're if you've got a rack with sambos like I do, you can't keep them in that rack. That's not where they're going. Um, because that's that's gonna be way not too with hot. the heat on. No, not with the heat <laughs> no. on. Yeah. Uh, so they're definitely gonna you're gonna have to think about that if you're keeping if you're keeping a lot of different snakes and you want to get into rubber boas, it's going to be a different different things. So you got to set them up differently. Uh, their, their temperature range is usually high seventies, low eighties, maybe not even into eighties. Uh, where are y'all keeping? What's, what's the warm spot in your setup for your rubber boas? I've never really measured the warm spot in mine. Um, I kind of think of them sort of like along the lines of crested geckos yeah, or tarantulas. They're happy at room temperature. And, yeah, my room temperature might be a little bit different than your room temperature. I'm not talking about your snake room either. I'm just talking about a regular room in your house. Yeah. They're happy with that. They don't they don't need these high, high temperatures. I I wouldn't give them a hot spot of more than maybe 80, 85. I would agree with that. I um I'd say mine are about 82 probably. I do provide a hotspot. Um, it's very small compared to the area of a hotspot that I'd give other snakes, but I do I do it um, during the warmer months just to give aid and digestion, basically. Um, I do think you could keep them in a snake room in a rack, but you want to always maybe, if it is in a snake room, I would put it on the bottom, the bottom shelf and make sure the heat was maybe turned off or very low on those particular ones. Yeah, I find anywhere in the 70s, you're probably pretty good with those guys. Yeah, Um, Yeah, so I would say my ambience with them is low 70s, and then they do have that small hot spot that gets to about 82 or 83. That's about how I do my racks. I think I've got them in a rack where the temperature is the highest at 83 because I keep keep rosies in there. My rosies do fine, kind of at a cooler temperature. And uh, they've been doing fine so far. They've been good. They eat for me. They seem to be doing well. You'll find Mm -hmm. them laying on the heat for short periods. And then when they eat, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
and then laying all the way at the front sometimes where it's wetter around that water bowl because they keep the water bowls towards the front. And they'll kind of lay that and they go back and forth. They do like to burrow. So, and I, you know, you mentioned a water bowl. So I, I, I bet we all do the sim- similar with that, but I do keep one big enough that they can soak in if they want to. Um, I don't find them in the water very often at all, but I do provide that as an option. Yeah, mine right now, the water bowl's big enough. I think, well, I don't know. We'll see when they get full grown, but right now they're small to fit into any water bowl I put in there. Yeah, my, my adult females couldn't fit in the bowl. The male probably could if he wanted to. Um, but, you know, I use one of those four and a half, five inch crock bowls. Yeah. Oh, um, sure. I like it because it's heavier, so they can't just decide to flip it and yeah. create a giant muddy wet spot. But, you know. So, and for me, part of it is I think I, we're very dry here. So I try to do bigger water bowls with a lot of things that do require any amount of humidity because I want a little bit more surface evaporation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you definitely, so that's another thing you definitely, when I say this with a lot of animals, you've got to not only know your animal, but know where you live. Yeah. Jason's definitely going to have a harder issue with humidity, which is funny because you do rainbow bows, which are a humidity uh, driven animal. Mm-hmm. But you live in Colorado where it is super dry compared to me down here in Houston where. Humidity is not going to be an issue for me. Yeah, you're 80, 90% all the time. Yeah, so it's, it's, yeah. it's, we're going to be good. And plus, I don't really run the heat, so I'm not drying my house out in the winter because there's not really a winter here. So, uh, whereas it's just, it's, so it's going to be drastically different where you're at. And you, you kind of need to monitor humidity only on that range. But I think you, if you keep long enough, you can tell if something's humid and if something's not humid. It's, it's, it's yeah, I don't. I don't measure humidity yeah. in anything. I, I watch the animals and I watch the cage. And I think that probably goes for many, many keepers. When, when I see people, especially on like the rainbow bowl forms and they're asking about specific humidity numbers, they're usually pretty new and they're seeing those, those quoted ranges. But I think everybody pretty much learns to watch the animal. I think a source of water is the biggest issue for most things. Uh, I think people yeah. harp on humidity too much, but if you have a fresh source of water, one, that adds humidity to the cage just by being there. Two, that's really where a lot of them with, and like I've said it before, I killed an entire litter of rainbow boas over a decade ago because I didn't put water back in in time and babies will dry out quickly. That mm-hmm. wasn't because the cage wasn't wet. That was because they didn't have a, a bowl of water. That is where yep. uh, a lot of that's come from. So if you've got a bowl of water in there for your rubber boas, they're going to be good. Like I said, well, this- and you said something important there too, and I think that that's fresh water. Yes, because a lot of snakes, uh, in particular, they even if they have a water bowl, if it's stagnant or dirty water, they will refuse it. Yeah, and you'll see that when you go wait three or four days, go change the water out, and watch what your snake does immediately. Almost every time they go drink, they go over there and they start drinking right away. Um, and it happens a lot with like my big boas; they'll go and they'll drink a, a like half the bowl sometimes, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I think I think water. They need a water source of some sort. They're definitely one that needs that. Uh, we hit on feeding a little bit. Uh, smaller meals are better. Uh, I am going to try. I didn't do. I don't know why I haven't done it the past couple years, but I am going to try feeding multiple pinkies now, kind of like in a pile. Like here's a pile of babies, the way they would mm-hmm. in nature. I've done that with my pine snake, where I'll take like a handful of mice and chunk them in there, and uh, it seems to. I mean, that's definitely more a burrowing snake does that. So feeding wise, go ahead. I, I do kind of a mix of that. So a lot of times I'll do exactly what Travis um, suggested, which where I'm putting, you know, three or four fuzzies in a little bowl and putting that bowl in there. So, if you know, like frozen thawed. Sometimes I will. I have some snakes that will eat, an uh, not an adult, but like maybe a small adult 
you know, larger than a hop or kind of that in-between area, a mouse. If they will eat it, I will do that once in a while. But um, if I have, if you have a rubber bow that's struggling eating like that, exactly what Travis said, just that bowl with three or four in there. And I put the frozen thawed in a little, one of those little disposable Tupperwares and set it in there and they'll come find it out and usually eat them all. Um, one thing that is interesting with them, they do a lot of, they'll eat, they'll stop eating when they're full, like when they're done. So if you put a bunch in there, it's not like a regular boa that is just opportunistic and always eating. They seem to know when they're full, when they want to be done eating. Yeah. Hmm. That is interesting. Yeah. Cause, uh, I've got some big red tails that will they'll eat nonstop. If you keep feeding mm-hmm. them rats, they're going to take rats to their own detriment. I mean, yeah. they'll kill themselves by doing it. Where with the rubber boas, you know, if I've got one that will always eat three out of that bowl and I put four in there, a lot of times it'll still stop with three, which mm-hmm. I find really interesting. Yeah. Um, they, they know their own limits. Yes. Yeah. Another thing to mention. Um, so they have also been observed to eat baby birds, uh, lizards, um, and then in a few cases, even snakes, but it does seem that they're preferred, even in the wild, they're eating rodents would be their preferred food. So, uh, deer mice and, uh, voles and things like that. Yeah. I have, I haven't tried lizards. I did try button quail babies, chicks. Did they take them? None of mine took them. So, okay. Um, but that also could be a, a locale thing too. In some areas, it, it could be. Uh, birds are going to be more common than some of the ground-dwelling rodents. And so that's definitely, depending on where your animals originate from, those millions of years of evolution have told them in their heads what smell is food. And sometimes to them, a bird is a weird-ass smell that they that they don't recognize as food, and sometimes they do. And that's a good point. They do have a, a very diverse range, as we touched on. It's not spread out all over the country, but they, they hit different habitats, so they probably are exposed to different things. Um, I have found with some of mine, it can't even be hard to get them started with, uh, uh, like basically pinky lab mice, like the normal mice we have. I wish I had access to like vole, um, pinkies or pups to try. I have had luck with, um, with some of those stubborn ones, getting them on soft furs. And yeah. I do, I just wonder, even though they're African soft furs, I wonder if they do have a, a little bit more of a wild smell than the, the other mice that we have. I'm sure. I'm sure it's got something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, once they are eating, though, they are good feeders. That's one of the things about them. It's not once you get them on food, it's like they're established and they're going to be good from here on out. They're not like wishy-washy other than t- uh, time of the year. Yeah. But they're not some of these that you just really struggle with. You get it to eat one and then it's not going to eat for a few months. And, you know, but when it's done, you know, in the fall, when it's done eating, you just got to almost I mean, you got to be willing to recognize that. And you're not trying to fatten it up over the winter like some of these other snakes. So well, again, they'll let you know. Yeah. You know, yep. You, yep. I, I can, I can try feeding my male past July, but like it, it's almost like he knows the calendar hits August, and he just turns off. It doesn't yep. matter how much I put in front of him, what it, he just ignores it and doesn't care. So that brings yeah. me to the part that I kind of hinted at earlier. The one of the reasons why it's probably not uh, as common a snake in the hobby, even though care wise. It's a very easy snake to care for, except for this one caveat, and that is that section of the year where it's not eating. And it's not only it's not eating. There are certain parameters that really, if you want a healthy rubber bow, you kind of have to meet. They are a snake that I fully feel needs to brumate. And I agree. And brumate does not mean I just don't feed it for three months. Brumate means that you need to put it through the whole 
cooling it down the way it's going to go. And it's going to be weird because ball python people are like, I'm going to cool my snake down to, I don't know, what is it, 60? Whatever it is, they cool it. I don't, I've never been. <laughs> I'm just going to turn off the heat tape yeah. at night for three weeks. Yeah, that's all they do. Room temperature and we're good. That's not going to work for these guys. Uh, we've already yeah. said many times where they live gets cold. And we don't mean like Texas cold. We mean like it's going to snow and freeze and be cold and hold snow for months. Mm-hmm. And so these guys for months need to be cooled down. And that was, as far as captive-wise, the scariest thing I've ever had to do for any animal I've ever owned. But I did. I went and bought a wine cooler, which I think for most people, if you don't have a situation where you can actually put them somewhere that cools down, because I don't. I, I live in Texas, and it could be 30 degrees tomorrow. And then by the end of the day, it could be 80. So I can't just be like, I'll put them in a box in the garage, which I know what some people do with some of these snakes that do need to go that low. So like Brettles pythons or like the Russian Samboas. If you live in a place where it's cool, you can put them somewhere that will get them to that temperature and hold it long term. Uh, so I, I would recommend Facebook Marketplace is your friend. Go find you a cheap wine cooler. They're awesome. But these guys want to cool down. We talked about with the babies. When they're born, they may not eat. For months because they're going into brumation. They, their mind doesn't say eat. Their mind says slow down and when it warms back up, we'll eat. And so if you're breeding these, and I'm sure Jason, you've seen this when you've bred them, you don't give them a meal right away. What do you, how do, when you're breeding rubber boas, what is, what is the process you go through once they're born? Um, so I keep them together, uh, damp until they shed. And so I'll take a, the entire litter and I'll put them in a small tub with damp paper towels. I do that with everything so Me even too. my rosy boas the driest animals i have they're gonna i'm keep them moist until I do they're with sand born. Boas too. yeah yeah and i think it's important um i mean they're pretty moist when they're inside the mom yeah. you know they're wrapped in <laughs> fluid so it only makes sense so once they shed i usually will separate them um and i will offer food just to see if they'll take it if they do i kind of set those aside. the other ones i will keep uh well, to go back a little bit if they do take food um I will keep those warmer than I do with the ones that don't, the ones that don't take food. I actually want to keep those cool um, in preparations for brumating them. Cause one thing to keep in mind, you know, every snake is born by absorbing the yolk sac, whether it's a live snake or a live birth or a, out of an egg, it all has a reserve that it's born with. And so if you're keeping that, that baby snake, warmer, it burns through that reserve faster. So if my goal is to brumate this and then, the attempt to get it to eat in the spring. I want that, those reserves as heavy as possible before they go into brumation basically. So I will keep those cooler. Um, it's pretty rare that I have any that, um, start eating right off the bat like that. Every once in a while I do get one. And sometimes I will keep those up over the first winter just to see. Um, but for the most part, I plan on just brumate and everything. So again, keeping them cooler and, uh, and I do separate, I guess if you're planning to brumate the whole litter, there's really no point, but I'll usually separate them and sex them and things like that. How are you brumating yours? Um, very similar to you. I don't have a wine cooler. I have a beverage uh, fridge that I use. And then I have a, a thermostat on it. That's made for, uh, I think it's made for like, um, like walk-in coolers and breweries and things like that. So it's a, it's kind of an on off thermostat. So you set the temperature and when it hits that temperature, it shuts the, the, um, you can set a little range, but it shuts the refrigerator off and then kicks it back on and it starts warming up. And, um, I probably don't need that because I think you can manually. I used to just manually adjust and then check the temperatures and it was fine. I like having the thermostat just because to me, it means I can be a little less observant, I guess, what if it, 
were to get too cold or too hot. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I really worry about too cold. The first year that I ever <laughs> brumated, um, I had them down to about 45, thinking that was where I needed to stop, and they wouldn't stop moving around. So I had to get down. I think I ended up hitting about 38 as a low that year before they'd actually act dormant. So they're um, they're really hibernating at that point. Yeah. Travis, are you putting your, I'm assuming you're putting yours through a brumation? Yes. Um, I have an uninsulated closet down here in the basement. Uh, basically it's the sump closet and I just put mine in there. Um, it regularly gets, you know, yeah, about 40 degrees in there. Um, you know, it still kind of swings up in temperature a little bit, but even a hot day in that closet is only maybe 55. Yeah. Um, which can happen in the wild. Yeah, know? it can certainly I'm happen assuming. in the wild. And yeah. when I, my, my first year before I even thought about using the closet, I did stick them out in the garage um, and we had a particularly hard winter that year. It got down to 28 in the garage and those two babies just, they didn't care. They trucked it right through. Built an antifreeze inside of them. Yeah. So a question for Travis, when you're brewmating them, are you using the same soil substrate that's in their no. cages? Um, so I, you know, they've gone a couple of months without feeding um, usually I will pull the water bowl for the two, the last two weeks before I put them into brumation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I put them in a 28 quart Sterilite, one of those ones with the rubber gasket. Oh yeah. That has yes. it. Yep. And I have taken some sphagnum moss, just pure sphagnum that is barely, barely damp. Like, the best way I can describe it is if you buy a kitchen sponge at the store, when you tear it open out of that cellophane, it's just barely got a little bit of dampness in it that it came from, you know, the company with. That's the level of dampness. And I just have a nice deep bed of that and they go into that. Okay. See, and I usually do a deep um, uh, bedding of aspen, something that they can kind of burrow down and get in the bottom. But again, yeah. I am keeping it pretty dry for the brumation period. See, I'm doing uh, – last year I did just sphagnum. I did I put them in a shoebox. I put each pair in their own shoebox, paired up, and I do uh, just damp sphagnum moss. I, I provide a water bowl just because out of habit I, I give them water. But um, this year I tried something. I tried putting – I had a bunch of cocoa chips. So I put cocoa chip on the bottom and then sphagnum moss on top just in case they really wanted to burrow down into something a little thicker than the sphagnum moss. Uh, the first year I put them in – Last year was just weird seeing, I mean, they were at 45 degrees, like you said, and cruising. Mm-hmm. Uh, two weeks into it, one of them passed a year eight. And I hadn't, I mean, I hadn't fed them for, I'd let them go on like an entire month or so. And then passed a year eight, like two or three weeks into it. I was like, what the hell are you still doing passing stuff? Um, it's a weird sensation, especially after being someone who owns Sandbow, the Kenyan Sandbows, and I'm keeping them so warm. So weird sensation. I, I had ice forming on the outside of their shoebox because like, in the back of the cooler it gets cold, colder than the front. Mm-hmm. So last year, ice would form on there, and I have to break the ice off to open the tub. And they're still like, you know, that's cool. I mean, so do you know what temperature you were hitting? Uh, the thermometer was reading, and I know there was ice, so it had to get below freezing in the very back near where the uh, actual air, cold air was coming out. But the thermometer was reading about forty five, and the, t- the cooler was set at about forty five. I think, it's, I think 45 right. is as cold as I can get that wine cooler because wine coolers aren't meant to freeze your wine. Yeah. Um, 
So, but if it's icing up, so you're probably averaging closer to 40, I'd yeah. imagine. Yeah. So uh, they still move. I, I can't get any colder, but it's got to be the way I see it, it's got to be better than keeping them at room temperature. Because we talked about these snakes being long lived animals living <clears throat> for 50, 60, 70 years. This has got to be how they do it. There's a huge chunk of the year where they live where their body is not running max speed. Mm-hmm. It's not even running half speed. Right? So yeah. that slowing that the, body down helps. And the the northern or the higher elevation and probably northern ranging ones, I mean, they're going dormant for probably five or six months out of the year. Yeah, right? I'm only doing three here. So, yeah. Of course, we're fe- probably feeding them more than they're finding. Oh, true. You know. It's definitely true. But, uh, so, I mean, it's, that I think is definitely the hurdle people have getting into rubber boas is I, I don't think brumation is a suggestion when it comes to these. Can you, can your rubber boa live without being brumated? A hundred percent. For a time. Yes. Yes. We've talked about them. They're, they're a really bulletproof kind of animal. They're designed to be that way, but they're also, by the fact that Hoyers had that boa that they found that lived for 40, 50, 60 years shows that they're supposed to be cooled down. Uh, they mm-hmm. want to be cooled down. The fact that your snake quits eating in August means that it wants to stop doing stuff. It doesn't want to keep running its metabolism full speed. If it did, it would eat. Yeah. And so you got to listen to your snake. Your snake, as counterintuitive as it comes to being a reptile owner and we're told we got to keep our snakes warm, it wants to be cold. And you got to get it cold. Well, and who are we to say that millions and millions of years of evolution is wrong? Yeah. You know, oh, they don't really need it. They just live where it happens. So they have to do it. No, it's, I agree. I think it's, it's pretty important for these guys. Um, same with my rosy boas. I brew made everything. I'm going to brew at my rosy. I've never done it before, but this year, and it's going to be fairly easy with them. I'm not, I'm obviously not putting them down at 40 degrees, uh, but I am going to take them off heat industry boxes and put them into the closet that has a window and that has no vents in it. And it's, it will get down, you know, into the sixties. Um, and try and get them cooler and see how that works. Uh, because again, I I've grown up on snakes that, that just feels unnatural. Like I don't, I know people that brewmate their bow. I don't brewmate. I don't do anything with my bows. I leave my bows the way they are all year. My sambos, same way all year. Um, which I've talked to you. I may try doing some of that stuff with some of those at some point, maybe not the sambos They're They are what they are, but so uh, I do go ahead. Go ahead. I do cool my boas and that actually brings up a point that I, th- I think we should distinguish a little bit when we're talking about um, brumating rubber boas, it's all day, all night. Yes. So it's not the same as cooling boas, cooling carpet pythons and things like that, where you're dropping a really cold nighttime low. But even I know some of those carpet pythons, they talk about getting them, you know, high fifties, low sixties. They're only doing that at night and they're still giving them a hot spot you know, to the mid eighties during the day, this is different than that. This is, this is 24 seven. Yeah. If you're a carbon um, person, this is, this is, more this like, is like colubrids. Well, yes, like, all, all the time. Well, exactly. And brettles do the same thing. I know that you throw that one weird carpet python where yes, you can 24 seven brumate your brettles, but you're not going to do it to your jungle. Well, but even with brettles, you should be letting them come up in temperature during the day. So, you know, yeah. Um, the other thing to talk about, I think with brumation in particular is uh, keeping them dark, I think is important as well as, I mean, not just cold, but you want it dark because you want them to really feel that they're, you know, in the wintertime underground where they're not coming out at all during the day. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, like I said, it's, if you're someone who's never done it, it's a, it's a weird feeling and I'm sure 
uh, the first time either one of y'all had to do that if, for keeping things that you've never done that to, it had to be a weird feeling going, all right, I'm going to forget y'all for the next three months and we're going to just gonna basically freeze for three months and you're going to enjoy it. I actually had them get out of the tub and out of the refrigerator. They were in the first time I did it <laughs> when I hit that 45 degrees. So that's how I know that 45 degrees is not cold enough. I and know. that's how I know that they're good escape artists. <laughs> Well, that's why with the ice on the back, the forms on the back of those things, like, well, at least the ice will get a little colder. But uh, yeah, they still it's just unnatural to me <laughs> for, that, for that shit to happen and for them to be like, oh, no, it's cool. Just go ice skating. <laughs> so as far as a pet snake goes, I find rubber boas in the short period of time I've had them. But Jason, you've had them for a, a decade almost. And Travis, you've had them for a while as well. Uh Actually, no, I've had them almost two. two that's what I meant, two decades. Yeah, two, was, decades uh, yeah. two decades. Uh, they're a great pet as long as you can meet those requirements. And I, again, I don't think they're, I, I don't think you're asking too much to go, guys, just cool them down. And if you live in the northern states, like Travis, it's very easy. He puts them in a closet in the basement and they stay cool enough through the winter and they're fine. Uh, if you're not in those areas, you just got to do a little extra. And that little extra will pay out because there's such a cool snake to have and hold. Um, I'm not going to be one of those. Their personality is, but they're naturally, they are a very interesting snake in the way they interact with you. Um, I've never yes. reached into my tub with my rubber bows and thought, Ooh, I hope these don't bite me. Like I've never, like the, th- it doesn't cross my head, but with like a sand boas, I'm like, okay, we're going to make sure that you don't bite me. Cause if I just reach in here and grab you, it's definitely going to happen. Yeah. And besides being really good pets, they're in a, uh, they're a great, uh, ambassador species, so yeah. to speak. Yes. So if you're doing any kind of outreach with, um, especially little kids, I think that they're just wonderful. When, um, when I used to do school presentations, uh, I would always, I'd bring a lot of different animals. I'd, I'd set up a table very similar to like a reptile expo display, but then I'd also have stuff for the kids to handle. And the rubber bowers were the only ones that I didn't hold the head while kids handled the rest of them. Cause they're just, they're not going to bite, you know, and, and kids get so tickled to watch them just wrap around their wrists. Like we were talking about and things like that. And so it, it helps if there's any fear at all, it's just a great one to, to hand to a kid and let them handle them. Well, and I would, I would go beyond just kids. Um, so yeah. obviously we all have children and I'm going to guess that obviously our children love to have their friends get introduced to the animals that we have. And, you know, I have had parents who have been very, very reticent about it. And, you know, whenever Lorelai, my youngest, brings her friends over, like, can we show them a snake? The first snake I go to, yeah, is the rubber boa, because I know that this is, you know, super placid, super calm, Mm -hmm. very, very good animal to... And when a mom who is afraid of snakes or just uncomfortable around snakes sees their kid holding this, you know, for lack of a better term, just this giant overgrown earthworm. Super unthreatening animal. Yeah. They, they see yes. that it's really just this animal is not threatening. And, you know, yeah, when, when it curls up around your kid's r- wrist like a bracelet and the kid's just smiling, you know, I, I had a mom who... She sat there and she watched this. And when it first came up of, okay, I'm going to bring the snakes out. I know that you're uncomfortable with them. So I'm going to, you know, I'll avoid bringing it to you. I'm not going to make you hold it. She came over and said, I think I want to try this. Because she got to see that really this animal was 
absolutely the most benign thing you will ever see. So it's not just for kids. They're great for adults who are uncomfortable too, I think. That is always awesome to be able to get somebody to swap how they feel about these animals. And that's really kind of all, a lot, I should say all of ours, but obviously not for everybody, but most of us, that's our goal is to get people to yes. like the things that we don't, that they don't like that we do like. Um, I do you can just to appreciate them to the point where they're not, you know, taking a shovel to every garter snake they find in their yard. Exactly. Oh, I had a friend from my school the other day, send me a picture of a legless lizard from his friend from Alabama. He sends me this picture. I go, dude, that's, that's a legless lizard. He goes, Really? And he found that really interesting. And he picked it up and he moved it across the street into a different yard. And he didn't kill it. He thought it was a snake at first. And he sent me a picture. The great thing was he thought it was a snake and sent me a picture of it still alive. Yes. <laughs> I hate getting the what's this after you've already killed it. I'm like, well, it was a decay snake. It was harmless. Way to go. But yeah. uh, so it was a legless lizard. It was really cool. So, But I do want to jump back real quick to the uh, brew mating. And I think one thing we didn't hit on, time frame. I normally uh, stop feeding at Halloween. Because I still have, like, my females may take a little bit of food. But I officially quit feeding at Halloween. And then I put them in the cooler at Thanksgiving. And then I bring them out in March. That's my time frame. That's how I've done it this last year and this year. It's kind of like my – just so I kind of – but what is your time frame for stop feeding, cool down, bring out? Travis. Or... Go ahead, Travis. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, my male pretty much – turns himself off around August. The females usually turn off around September-ish. Um, I will still offer until about the first week of October, but I don't think I've ever had them take past that last week of September, first week of October. Um, I let them, I, I will keep them up, but I've got a, a light, that you know sunrise sunset timer and it's giving them that decreasing photo period so yeah by halloween um they're pretty much ready to go down that's when i start um that's when i'll pull the water bowl out i'll give them two weeks without the water and then they go into the closet they will stay in there yeah, until about mid, I go basically St. Patrick's Day, mid-March. Yeah. Um, some of the natural history of these will indicate that the, you will see the males active before the females. So I will pull the male at around that, you know, mid-March and give him a week or two by himself. And then I will pull the females. So the females are usually coming out around the end of March, beginning of April. Gotcha. Jason, what are you doing? Um, a little bit of everything. <laughs> so traditionally I started um, kind of matching them with my rosy boas, which my rosy boa has been kind of the holiday schedule because it makes it easy to remember, you know, um, to where I'm cooling them on Thanksgiving and I'm waking them up on Valentine's day and I'm breeding them on April fool's day type of thing. Um, the rubber bow is I started doing that and then I kind of spread it out a little bit. So, uh, like you guys have both mentioned, I go to more like mid March with them. Uh, there's been a shift with the temperatures here in Colorado. Like it's, it's very strange. In fact, last week was in the seventies here, which just oh, wow. is, it makes no sense. Um, I've been noticing that my snakes, across all my species are breeding later and later. And so I think that they're, even though they're inside in a snake room, they're feeling that. And so I've kind of been shifting things back. So I'm actually 
cooling things later in the year than I used to, and then letting them go longer because we're getting, you know, blizzards into May all of a sudden. So like warm weather's in December. And so <laughs> I'm kind of, I'm shifting to follow the natural outside cycles a little bit. Um, everything I keep is indoors, but I do think it makes it a little bit easier. And I'm I, sure Barry they, they pick up on it. Yeah. 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 I think they're picking up on that. So um, I had Rosie Bo is born not last year, but the year before in the end of November, oh, wow. which is just unheard of. But like I said, everything just seems to be shifting. So I think when I was pulling them, waking them up too early and giving them food they they weren't ready for that cycle yet. So I've kind of been shifting a little bit to it. Yeah. Like I said, it, it's, you got to learn your animals and you got to know where you live. There's a lot that goes yeah. into it that, but it's not that hard once you figure it out, like you said, once you have a schedule, you just kind of, follow the mm-hmm. schedule and, and and your animals have a schedule they naturally have a schedule they'll they'll let you mm-hmm. know well like travis mentioned with the males they stop eating before the females they in the wild they find males uh up and moving around before they find females i would assume that also means the males are probably eating before the females males also won't eat while they're breeding so they're one of those species that when it's breeding time, they have a one track mind and that's all they're focused on. So it does make a little bit of sense. I, I, I do kind of wake all my stuff up at the same time, but I, I think it does make sense. Like Travis mentioned to pull the males out first and get them on food a little bit. Cause they're, they're going to go a lot longer without eating the females do. Well, you watch the, uh, if you ever watch any of the stuff on the garter snakes in Manitoba, those, those males come out first and then the females come out first, and the males warm up the females and then they breed. So it's mm-hmm. there are other situations where the males do come out first probably has to come out get a little food in it and it probably has to do with with sperm uh formation i mean they're probably not form their body's got to get their up to temperature to get stuff uh moving but yeah to get things working <laughs> yeah. yep so well and they're going to need some reserves so they need a few meals in them um because yeah. they're exerting a lot of energy when they breed. I mean, you'll see, uh, I've seen boas that almost look sickly at the end of breeding season because they're going so aggressively after the females and they're just, they're not eating. And they're, like oh, yeah. I said, they're one track mind when it's that time of year. And it's a lot of them. Like I said, my rosy boas do it. My sand boas do it. They, they just shut down. I've got one male rosy that I quit eating. I know he wants to breed. And I'm like, dude, she's got the year off. I'm sorry. You just have to sit here and be hungry, but I'm going to start roommating. I'm going to see how that goes. We'll, we'll see how, how he does. But this episode went way longer than I want. I think it's going to be this way. I, I really enjoy talking about rubber boas. Um, it's a blast. I feel like there's so much more we could have talked on too. <laughs> there was a million things and I'm like, we didn't get to everything, but uh, the basics and, and we can always do another episode of rubber boas because they're really awesome. Uh, the, the main thing I want people to take away from this episode uh, for me is that uh, they're a great pet. Don't be scared off by the things that make them different than what you're used to. Uh, they're just different. And you, and you learn to do those things and you will, you will enjoy them as a pet. And you can get one and we talk, they're not big. So you get you a male that's small. You can set it out the way Travis does with this nice, pretty enclosure that's uh, basically bioactive and it could look great. It'd be a, if this is the only snake you have, it'd be an amazing little piece in your living room uh, and to see how they naturally act. And then it's, it's definitely a situation. I think we're getting towards a lot of people um, into the hobby now that are okay with one or two animals. Whereas like, mm-hmm. there's no way I could own one snake. It's just, it's not, it's not physically or mentally possible for me to own one snake, but there are definitely people getting into the hobby that could do this. And this would be a great one for that. Cause it doesn't take up a lot of space. It's very calm. Like we said, they're great. Once you get them eating, they're great eaters. And if you get them from a good breeder, uh, they should come to you being good feeders. So that shouldn't be an issue. Um, there are still some 
wild caught ones out there. Legalities on. So for those of you listening, I guess we haven't covered that. There are some legalities on rubber boas. Please check with your state because I don't know all of them, but I know like is it Washington? Some states you cannot have them. Some you can have like two and can breathe them. I believe Washington you can and them. Oregon are the yeah. tightest. Um, California for Bote is somewhat tolerant. They can be collected with a license. And I think the maximum bag limit is two. Um, but I don't think you can sell them. I think you can gift them. Um, for Umbratica, you cannot collect them. You cannot touch them. You cannot do anything. If somebody is selling you an Umbratica, they're either lying or they are breaking so many laws <laughs> or they're an undercover fish and wildlife trying to get you in trouble. Um, I think Utah has... I don't know that you can keep them in Utah. I think that has gotten people in trouble. Um, I don't know that Wyoming has got anything tight against them. I believe Idaho has, uh, you can collect up to four with a license. And I don't know about Montana. Yeah, it's... Well, you know a lot more about it than I do. <laughs> if, you I, in, um... if you live in their native range, please look up your, your laws. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I was, uh, and don't quote me because I may be wrong, but I was thinking that California, Oregon, and Wyoming, you could, if you lived there, you could keep a wild caught one, but you, like Travis mentioned, you're not allowed to sell it or breed it. Yes, if you're And I I could be mistaken about the California one. I know you can keep them. I I don't know if you can sell them out of California. I, I think you can gift them, but I could be confusing that with a different state or a different species. And uh, I can't say this with 100% accuracy, but if you're seeing them on a random table at a reptile show, it's probably wild caught because uh, most folks are getting them from breeders and uh, well, and they're not would, just selling them randomly on a table. I would also check that a little bit. If you're seeing an adult, yeah, it's probably yeah, yeah. wild caught. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you're seeing a baby, odds are it's probably captive bred. Um, however, it may have changed hands a few times between people. And well, and that brings up another point um, that I was thinking of. We, I feel like there the popularity in rubber bows is growing. There's a lot of interest in them, and for whatever reason, it has been one of those um, that I I think a lot of scammers are showing pictures of rubber. So if you see them on Facebook, basically, make sure that yes. it's a legitimate breeder you're buying it from. Yes. Because um, these scammers, I mean, they do a good job. I mean, they're showing videos and pictures, and then you know, yeah. So if somebody uh, wants to sell you a rubber bow and only wants friends and family from PayPal, I'd shy away from that one a little bit. Yeah, it's um, it's tricky out there. And when we say you see them on the table and it's an adult, just because it's small doesn't make it a baby. Understand these are small snakes. So to a lot of people, when they see uh, a, it could be an adult male, they would still think, oh, look at this baby snake. It's like mm-hmm. you see a lot of like decay snakes too. With every decay snake I get shown, look at this baby snake I found. I'm like, that's a full grown decay snake. That's that's the size they get. Night snakes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So like another, that. another thing goes into the research. No, know the difference. And they, as they mature, they they look a little more mature. Their head looks a little different, and you can kind of tell. But babies, and typically you, babies they're going to be small. darker. Yes. So even a small male is still going to be fairly dark. So if you see a 15, 18 inch animal that's a dark chocolatey brown, that's an adult male. Yeah. Your babies tend to be pink mm-hmm. pink and light tan, tan. And, yeah lighter there's tones. definitely a color change in that so you know if you fell in love with that green picture of the adult in the audubon field guide 
you may not get one of those. <laughs> Yours may end up being chocolate brown as an adult, but that is perfectly okay. They are still an amazing animal no matter what color they're at. So, all right, we got to wrap this up because this is taking forever. I know that we're cutting into Travis's baking time. No. <laughs> not baking for my coworkers this week. Forget you, coworkers. Undergoing renovations at work, but I do have to bake because I'm baking lasagna tonight. So. so, uh, anything else to add about these awesome snakes? Uh, yeah, just to reiterate what you but... said, I mean, don't be afraid to try something new. Just make sure you do a little bit of upfront research so you know what you're getting into. Um, they're great snakes if the husbandry is met properly. It's easy to do. It's just different. So once you understand those differences, I think anybody can do it and anybody can do it well. Yeah, don't force yeah. that snake to be like your other snakes. Yep. It says boa, but it's not a boa in that regard. Yep, I, I would agree with that. Absolutely. So, all right, that is it for our first species episode. Uh, we'll decide what the next one is. I don't know. It won't be a snake. We'll decide on something not a snake. Uh, and it will be out two weeks after you hear this episode, which this episode should air, I think, somewhere around the second week of January. We'll see. Hey, Happy New Year. Yeah, yeah. if you're listening to this, Happy New Year, because it's a new year already. <laughs> Hopefully, it's better than the last one. Uh, that's it. If you want to, Travis, anybody wants to reach out to you, how can I get a hold of you? Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Travis Wyman. I am not the motocross racer. Don't message him. He won't care about it. Uh, I how many he gets. <laughs> He's like, why do people keep asking? I'm not snakes? a doctor. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Instagram, snakes and bakes. That's snakes underscore n underscore bakes. And that's about um, baking, okay. not 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 weed. Yes. For anybody baking, out there hoping it's weed, weed, it's not weed. Yeah. Well, he did uh, grow up in Colorado. Come on now. <laughs> I, but I left Colorado before, before it became legal. So okay. Before it was cool. <laughs> and you can email me A-S-P-L-U-N-D-I-I at gmail.com. All right, Jason. Uh, Topline Constrictors on Facebook or toplineconstrictors at gmail.com. Uh, you can get a hold of us at the Facebook page, the Pint Size Reptiles Podcast Facebook page. You can get a hold of me at simply underscore serpents on Instagram, simply serpents on Facebook. Uh, also, this is all part of the Reptile Gumbo podcast, our Reptile Gumbo Network. I got used to saying that without the podcast at the end of it. Uh, so check out. At this point, you can check out In Blue, which is a great podcast done by uh, Heidi Dunlap and uh, oh my God, she's gonna kill me. Sorry, Rachel Allen. Whew. <laughs> She's going to kill me. Uh, it's a great podcast. That's out by now. The first episode, I believe, should have aired by the time you hear this. Or you can go check out our, our flagship podcast, which is the Reptile Gumbo Podcast. Thank you all for listening. Guys, thank you all for the episode. Uh, talk to you later. See you later. Good night.